0: I want to start uh, by talking a little bit about this because as we move into the end of chapter uh, 5, verse 14, which is where I want to start in just a minute and move into chapter 6. I talked about this last week, but here you really, in this paragraph at the end of chapter 5, here you really see it. Nehemiah as kind of a model servant leader. So what I thought I would do is, let's talk about that. I don't. this may be, a very foreign concept to you, or maybe it isn't. Uh, it's kind of interesting today in, in the early 21st century, people that are in leadership in business and in education as well as in Christian institutions are really talking a lot about this. And there's an institute called the Simon uh, Greenleaf Servant Leader Institute, and it doesn't have anything to do with Christianity, but it's really fascinating how they're talking about this and they're trying to foster and facilitate the development of servant leaders. And uh, a number of years ago, Jim Collins wrote a book uh, called Good to Great, and he talks about uh, various levels of leadership. And what he called level five leadership, he doesn't use the phrase I'm using, he talks about his level five leadership. He's really talking about servant leadership. So I thought what we do is just talk very briefly about that. If you're familiar with it, maybe you can talk about it. If you're not familiar with it, you just look at the the two terms, servant, leader. You know what leader is? But a servant leader. So what would be some of the characteristics of a servant leader?
1: Leads by example.
0: Okay. I'm just going to write a word here instead of writing all of it out. But it leads by example. Okay, good. Anything else? Humility. Humility. Selfless. And that is something, when you, re- if you ever read, and Jim Collins is not a Christian, but if you read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talks about level five leadership. This is one of their key characteristics. Humility. Anything else? Selfless. I'm sorry. Selfless. Okay. Um, now, in that sense, selfless as a leader, you're not you're not motivated by pride and self elevation. You're thinking of the mission of the organization, and you're thinking of the people in the organization, not yourself. That's kind of how I would uh, unpack selfless. Anything else? Helper. Helper. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's not bad. I want to talk about that in just a minute. That kind of what do you you, you yeah, don't I have to I raise your was hand. Wondering
1: about that humility. Is that be like an example of humility? Would be not to ask anybody to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. Do any job that you would not perform yourself. Is that?
0: Yeah, that that might be a uh, a dimension of humility. You yeah. know, you're not you're never too proud to do something for the success of the mission, yes. which is another way of saying that. Uh-huh. Anything else?
1: Verbal encouragement.
0: Okay, let's just write encouragement because that can take a lot of different. Um, uh, ways to encourage. It's a handwritten note to someone. doesn't have to only be verbal. But encouragement. A, a, a servant leader encourages people. Is there anything else? Authenticity. All right. I'm going to have to write up here. Authenticity.
1: What does that mean? A genuine belief in what you do and the people who do it with you.
0: Okay. You're not... You're not just, uh, let's be real crass about it, you're not just in it for the money, you're in it for the greater cause. Or, you know, what usually you talk about, what the mission of the organization is, whether it's ministry or business or
1: whatever. Making it easier for the people that are following you to follow you, helping them by nurturing them and
0: encouraging okay. them. And- All right, let's take as a dimension of encouragement, nurture. Those two do go together, but Matt, when you say nurture, what what comes to mind there? What do you mean by nurturing?
1: Well, I, I think you have to be showing the example, so that when you, by doing that, and then uh, somebody has a misstep or something like that, you kind of help them, you know, do help them make some corrections okay. and, and, and support them in making the correct decisions, okay. so that they. So that they don't quit.
0: Because a servant leader wants everybody in the organization, whatever it is, to succeed in terms of what they're asked to do or their gifts and so on. Because the idea of a servant is as they succeed, the whole organization succeeds. And you're a servant leader. This is, I'm going to have to bring this to an end. We'll spend a whole hour just doing this. But a servant leader is also interested in making sure that you understand everyone's strengths and you understand everyone's weaknesses. And you play to your people's strengths, not their weaknesses. Right? Jim Collins, in his his wonderful book, puts it this way. Make sure that everyone is on the right seat of the bus. Not only that they're on the bus going forward, but they're on the right seat on the bus. And Collins says, if they're not on the right seat, your job is to either put them in another seat or get them off the bus. Now again, that's you know, kind of going beyond some of the things of Nehemiah, but that's good. It, we could go on with this, but this really is, this really is what I see in Nehemiah. I see these qualities in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is Nehemiah's mission is to clear clearly from God, build the walls of Jerusalem, uh, deal with the security issues of the city. This is my city, God says. This is my city. The temple is in the center. I want it secure. That's your job. So that's the mission. He makes it very clear to everybody. And his job is to get the people mobilized to accomplish that task. Just barking orders? No. There has to be orders. There has to be direction to what you're doing. But you're, sometimes sometimes you serve and lead by doing, not just by telling. It's not just telling people. Sometimes you have to do what you're telling them to do. Now, not always, but sometimes. And so, it's it's the kind of it's it's so it's so exemplary and powerful and wonderful to see an organization, a ministry, or a business, or a school, or whatever, that is being led by a group of servant leaders. It makes such a difference. It makes such a difference in the ethos in the community, in the environment of that of that organization. It makes such a difference. To the point where, again, we'll talk about it the way we talk about 21st century, people actually enjoy coming to work. Which is kind of a novel, radical concept in some cases. <laughs> because sometimes when you talk to people, they hate what they're doing. They hate their job, but that's that's not where we're after. So any questions or even additional comments? I mean, I, I don't want to spend any more time on this, but if you want to ask anything else, we will. I do want to ask something.
1: Yeah. yeah. You give us this map, and then there's the
0: one down below. And yeah. they just, they didn't
1: go all around this whole thing, Did they They just no. go around
0: here. Just around the very, very dark, yeah, dark. very, very dark. That's, hey. that's the city wall. I can explain what the rest of that is, but you don't have to
1: don't worry about it. Another day. So yeah. yeah. What well, kind of the synopsis would be when you, when you try to do the nurturing step by example, you normally know self you're a helper? But then if it's not working out, they're off the box. Or is a servant yeah. leader that that's twentieth century what we're talking about biblically, a servant leader just keeps on doing it until you wait for God's time or you, no, do I don't do you, think do you, so. How do you make that well, okay, listen. We only have got 30 more years on
0: Well, listen, uh, let's approach it from another angle, okay? Let's approach it from the angle of stewardship. Uh, I'll kind of put it the way I think we should think about whatever we do. We've been stewarded by God to do this. In this case, you're a leader of an organization, president of a bank, president of a school, president of a corporation, lead pastor of a church, head of the youth ministry, whatever areas of responsibility, you're leading somebody. And so part of your stewardship responsibility is to make sure that everybody, everybody that is, we'll put it the way we put it, working for you is doing what you want them to do to the best of their ability for the good of the mission. If neither one of those fits, they either need to be changed in terms of what they're doing or they need to get off the bus. That's your stewardship responsibility. And so I I remember, I'm going to use this as an illustration because that is when I learned my first real, real lesson in servant leadership. When I became president, the lady who was handing our donor uh, uh, relations, she had been doing this for like 30 years she was 59 and a half years old she didn't like computers so she was not entering the donor the donations correctly into the computer and when she tried to do it it took her so long so she just had stacks of checks in her desk and when i found that out it was just very early in my my uh, role as president I had a little group of men that I called my Aaron group. Uh, that I, There were five men that I just met with every other week. And I did, they were all leaders in the community, neat Christian leaders. But I asked them, what would you do? And this is what they every one of them said unanimously, you got to get rid of her. Well, how do you get rid of somebody that's been working, you know, for almost all of their adult life for this ministry, has served the Lord, how you put it? How do you get rid of her? So I asked them, okay, how do you get rid of her? So they gave me some really great ideas. You want to celebrate her contribution, you want to celebrate all that she's done, but you want to help her understand that she no longer fits with what is going on in the organization. I mean, you know, to say I no longer, I, I can't run a computer, that person should not be heading up donor records. That just, a, you know, that's an oxymoron. It takes about four seconds to think she's got to go. So, we prayed about this and we worked on it. So I went to her and I spent a lot of time affirming Marie, all that she's done. And I said, Marie, are you comfortable in doing what you're doing? No. Uh, do you enjoy it? Not anymore. I hate coming to work. And so what we started to do, we started, it's, don't you think it's a really good idea for you to think about taking an early retirement? Or seeing if, if there's another way in which you could serve. No, I want to do this or I'm not going to serve here anymore. So she started talking to her family in Central Kansas. She ended up moving back to Central Kansas. Got to work for a church. We had a big celebration, a big cake. We rejoiced with her. I could have just fired her. But instead, serve, nurture, encourage, but help her understand you're on the wrong seat of the bus. You've got to get off the bus. And I I learned so much with those men. were incredibly helpful to me. But I learned so much... About, about how you look at people and their skills. And it, I'm telling you, I wish I could tell you every one of them worked out that easily. Some of them didn't. They were very difficult. But that I'm answering your question with an illustration. It is our stewardship responsibility. If a person is not doing what they're supposed to do and they're not contributing to the mission, they either got to change jobs or they got to get off the bus. There's no other way to look at it. It's good stewardship. One of the men in my errand group, that's the group of advisors I call my errand group, Moses had an Aaron, you know, he said, when, if you have to dismiss somebody, it should not be a surprise to them that they're being dismissed. That was a revolutionary idea to me. What? But in other words, you're, you're giving them responsibilities, and if they're not meeting those responsibilities, you have to help them to see, you know, it's probably best for you and certainly best for us that you leave. Again, I wish every single opportunity worked out that way. Now, I'm telling you more than you need to know, but this is a profound concept to really nail down. If you're a pastor of a church, that's a profound concept. If you're a youth leader, that's a profound concept. If you're a business leader, I mean, these are, these are the things that Jim Collins, who's not a Christian, is observing, this is what makes an organization work well. He would always put it, it's the difference between a good company and a great company. A great company has a leader who's a servant leader. Yeah, Fred, is your hand up?
1: Uh, yeah, when, when we hire someone, and we've had our own companies, uh, we, we've hired perhaps the wrong person, and that will happen eventually. And early on, it's the responsibility uh, of the organization to see that Oh yeah. Try to provide training for that person to achieve the skill levels that are required for that position. If, in fact, they cannot, then you've given them an opportunity to succeed, but then I think, and they see it, then it's easier to let them down and say, it's probably not working and perhaps you need the freedom to select another area to use your skills. And, and it's not, per, I mean, it's personal, you care about it, but your organization is essential to, to succeed, just like this building and this wall, it had to succeed.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. John Maxwell says, any leader is going to all, always play to people's strengths, not their weaknesses. If, let's say, there's an area in whatever they're doing, uh, it's a real weakness, and they're on a 2, level 2, at a, a, a scale of 10. And you start doing everything you can to help those weaknesses and get them up. You might get them up to 6, but they're still only a 6. You want them at a 10. And so they're not play, you don't play to their weaknesses. You don't try to enhance their weaknesses so they get from a 2 to a 6. You want them playing to their strengths, whether between 8 and 10 all the time in the categories you want them to do. That takes tremendous understanding of your people. But if you just play to if you if all you do is try to help people with weaknesses, you're not helping your organization, and you're really not helping them, because you're just helping them to get from a two to a six. And the weaknesses they're still not ever going to overcome their weaknesses. That's just the way God made them.
1: I know you're focusing mostly on the servant side of those two words, but having all of those attributes and not being a leader. Get I mean, you've got to be strong, you've got to be insightful, you got to be purposeful, you've got to be visionary, you've yeah. got to be wise. And so you know, humility with strength is kind of a nice blend. But you've got to have other things. Oh, think. yeah. Nobody's going to follow you. Yeah.
0: John Maxwell also used to say, if you're way out ahead of your organization and nobody's following you, you're not a good leader. He said the idea that leadership at the top is lonely, he said... Really, that's not a good that's not a good thought, because a leader should have, and maybe not every single person, but a leader should ha- leader should have everybody around him and agreeing. This is where we're going. This is where we're headed, and there's clarity of where we're headed. You buy into the mission? You buy into why we're here? You know, I, that's rhetoric. I'm not asking you to answer the question. But I, I felt so strong about that. And I, I don't know if Jim, when you worked for me, you were you were a part of that. But I had everybody memorize the mission statement, and I. And I, that was, I, I, if you could say it to my assistant with per, perfect without any mistake, I'd give you a free meal. Uh, and so Jim, Jim, I didn't realize you won that. That's good. Okay. Verse 14 chapter five. Now thinking of all that we just said, look at, look at what Nehemiah does here. Look, look at how he talks to his people. Look at his actions. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. Now, in your, if you want to look at this in the map, you will see, in the one I directed you to, you will see Judah in parentheses, what they called it was Yehud. And if you would look in the Hebrew text, that's what you would see. Yehud was what the Persian Empire called it. And Yehud was a subdivision of the larger Persian province called Beyond the River. Now, here we learn something that we didn't learn in the previous four and a half chapters of this book. Nehemiah now has an official position in the empire. What is that official position? He's the governor. He's the governor of this small province of Yehud, which is a part of the larger province of beyond the river in the Persian Empire. So that's new information. We didn't know that. And then he adds, to be their governor in the land of Yehud from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. He is governor from 445 BC until 433 BC. So he served in this role a long time. All that is happening in what we're studying right now is one little event at the beginning of his rule as governor, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Okay, he said, okay, as governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, allowed every one of his governors to tax the people in that little sub-province, to get enough money to provide the food allowance. Because as the governor, there would be diplomatic activities, things that he had to do. Plus, he's the governor. He has the right to a food allowance. It would be like the petty cash allowance in your office, which you use for occasional breakfasts and lunches and things like that. I'm trying to make this relevant. So, but what is he saying to us? I did not do that. Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. 40 shekels of silver is about a pound of silver. Now, remember, this is a poor agricultural province. This has been reduced significantly since it was conquered by the Babylonians. It's almost a, an insignificant province in the, in the vast scheme of things of the Persian Empire. But Nehemiah is saying, the previous governors taxed the people, heavily taxed the people, and then continuing, even their servants, ESV translates that servants, it could be their assistants, those who served the governor, lorded it over the people. So you have three characteristics of previous governors. Laid heavy tax burdens, daily ration of one pound of silver, and their servants, their assistants, those who served the governors, lorded it over the people. That's that's kind of a euphemism. Lorded it over. What does that mean? Lorded it over the people. What? Yeah. I mean, dominant, autocratic, arbitrary rule of the people. In other words. Your life was really harsh under these governors. What does he say? Middle of verse 15. But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of the Lord. Because of the fear of God. So he's contrasting previous governors of Yehud and his governors 12-year rule as governor of Yehud, a significant difference. Nehemiah seeks to serve the people, not elevate himself through being governor. And he tells us why. Because of the fear of God. Fred. The term fear
1: used to be put into the proper in context that's what I was going to ask. A reverential respect uh, uh, understanding where,
0: where you stand in God's eyes. Right. Exactly. So and he says, because fear of God, fear of the Lord, in, in many ways, n- not always, but almost always, in many ways in the Bible, whether you're in Old or New Testament, fear is being used as a description of a worship word. It's a worshipful, reverential, Understanding of who God is and who you are. And so, if you think of, for example, in the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, many, many times you read in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, finish it, of wisdom. The beginning point of wisdom, no matter who you are, whether you're a leader, king, governor, whatever, or common ordinary worker, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, Nehemiah is telling us a lot here. It was his relationship with God and his understanding of who he is in the economy of God's things that caused him to serve the people of Yehud, not lord it over the people of Yehud for his own personal betterment. Nehemiah is interested in the mission that God has called him to, not his own betterment, his own self-elevation. And so here you see, it's an extraordinary statement. He is is not boasting here. He's trying to help say to the people, I've got your back. I care for you. And I am leading something that will benefit all of us. Because God has asked me to do this. And my relationship with him is affecting my relationship with you, meaning the people. So, I mean, it's a tremendous insight into the leadership qualities, the character integrity of Nehemiah, and why Nehemiah was successful in what God had asked him to do. Got it? Okay. Now he goes on. And what he talks about here is, is how he looked at, how he carried out his role and function as governor of Yehud, as governor of the province. Verse 16. I I want you to note four things here that he talks about. Verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall. I also persevered in the work on this wall. I didn't just tell people what to do in building the wall. I helped do the work in rebuilding the wall. So sometimes a servant leader, in terms of authenticity and in terms of humility and softness, and in terms of being a helper, will actually help do the work, depending on the situation. Not always. I mean, a worker, a, uh, a president or a CEO can't always go out and weed the flower bed. That's a silly thing. I mean, you hire people to weed the flower beds. He's supposed to be heading board meetings, putting strategy together. But every now and then that's not necessarily a bad thing for the CEO to go out and weed the flower beds in the summer. And for the people to see him doing something like that. I'm contributing to the overall mission. That's what he's saying. And then number two, we acquired no land. We acquired no land. I i 'm not increasing my net worth during this time of crisis because i 'm thinking of the whole number three this is interesting. All my servants and that again that the ESV translates that servants that could be assistants who should work with him were gathered there for the work, so he 's not only doing it, all his assistants are also helping rebuild the wall and then he adds number number seventeen is kind of interesting. Because this would be part of his responsibilities and duties as the governor. Having dinners for diplomats. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Jews, officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. People that are the diplomats. A governor. A governor has dinners and banquets serve Starbucks coffee, or I'm gradually beginning to enjoy scooters. Not quite there yet, but I'm almost there. And, you know, peanut butter ice cream for dessert. And there will always be a little dish of Reese's peanut butter cups. That's not in the Bible. I just made that up. Now, what was prepared at my
1: expense
0: in this time of crisis in this time of, of instability with all of these enemies, send up to the north, the Samaritans, Ammon from the, from the east and the Arab tribes from the south. They, they want to do everything they can to thwart our work. Very unstable times. I didn't tax people. I didn't take the food allowance. All of this I did at my own expense. He didn't have to do that. He wasn't required to do that. But in this time of crisis, he decided the best thing he could do as a servant leader was to do this. So he lists each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. At this point in time, Nehemiah is saying, "It would be grossly arrogant of me, grossly unfair of me, and it would be a dereliction of my duty that God has assigned for me to for me to tax the people." That doesn't mean He's not going to do that down the road, but now, though so I paid for this out of my own pocket, is Nehemiah a servant leader? <clears throat> So from paragraph 514-19, through 19, your thought paper for next week, using this paragraph, demonstrate to me that Nehemiah meets the qualities of a servant leader. Fifty words or less. Nobody takes that seriously, but it's so much fun for me to say that. Look at verse 19 with me. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. What's your first response to that? Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Kind of sounds, sounds a little self-elevating, doesn't it? Yeah. Hey, Lord, I'm doing all this good stuff. Don't forget me. Is that what he's saying?
1: I think he's saying maybe encourage me if I, you know, am discouraged. Um, I'll, I'll need help before this job is finished, and I need I need you, and please look upon me, favor because I want to serve. You.
0: Good, I think I think that is that's getting closer to the thought behind this. This is the first, and you're going to see quite a few of these as we move into chapter six. These quote remember close quote prayers. Remember prayers. Is this, is this
1: a replenishment request?
0: Well, maybe, but I think it's a little more uh, closely aligned with what Fred said. Um, if you say to God, remember, are you inferring by that prayer that God's forgotten? He's forgotten something? Oh, I'm so glad you told me that, Jim. Thank you. I didn't know that or I'd forgotten that. So Nehemiah, remember, oh, thank you, Nehemiah. I'd forgotten all about this. Now, if that's your view, you got the wrong view of God. God, I am utterly dependent on you. I am doing this for the good of the mission. I'm doing this for the good of what you have asked me to do. And when, when he says, remember, it is a reflection of his dependence on God. He's not telling God something that God's forgotten. He is reminding himself and reiterating again, this is the kind of God you are. You don't forget. You don't forget. You don't forget. For my good, what I've done for the people... Lord, I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm doing what you want me to do in the right way. Honor that God, not for my sake, but for your glory and for the sake of this mission.
1: Because probably still wants to hear the phrase "well done" by faithful servants. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's Amen. it's it's it's. It, and we have to really dice this carefully. This isn't a prayer of self-elevation. This is a prayer of recognition of his dependence on the Lord and asking the Lord to bless that dependence. You know why I'm doing this, God. You know the purpose for which I am doing this. It it, it evidences faith. It evidences dependence. And it's asking, Lord... Really, it would not be incorrect to translate this Bless this, Lord. Remember this. Bless this, Lord. When when you are exercising your sovereign superintendence of events, remember this. Bless this, Lord. Because this is the work you want me to do. Is it wrong for you to ask the Lord to remember, i.e., bless what you're doing for His greater glory. No. no, that's what He's doing. It isn't a prayer of self elevation. It's a prayer, recognize and bless what I'm doing for the good of this people, for the good of this mission. I am their governor. You have given me this immense stewardship responsibility. God, I don't want to blow it. I Don't want to mess it up. I'm doing what I think you want me to do in the way I think you want me to do it. Remember this, Lord. Remember this.
1: John, that that sentence that I can do all things through Christ. That
0: that would that would that would be that would fit here nicely in a New Testament spin on it. Did he do anything
1: wrong?
0: Did. Your hands are in front of your mouth. Did he do anything wrong? Yeah, do you think he had any missteps, that he could
1: have did more in line with what Christ?
0: I'm not sure as we go through the book that we can identify that we can identify anything very significant that he did wrong. So
1: I mean, we always talk about Daniel, Joseph and a few other people that were pretty and did pretty good things and didn't really mess up, so he might
0: be aligned with those. Because there's a lot of, I mean, everybody else messes up. I mean, besides like Daniel Joseph, I mean, there's not really any good characters in Joe to, to really follow. I don't, I don't, well, pedestal, but yeah, but but remember, Paul, I mean, yes, I mean, in, in in Daniel and in Joseph. And perhaps in Nehemiah, there's very little, if any, negative evaluation of what they're doing. David, there is. Solomon, there is. Hezekiah, there is. Josiah, I mean, pick a lot of the good guys of the Old Testament. But remember, remember something about our God. God delights in taking rebels and making them into Loving disciples. God delights in doing that.
1: Amen.
0: Every single one of you is a living example of that. I know I am. God delights in taking rebels and making them into loving disciples. It takes time. But that's what God delights in doing. Now, Matt, we do not know a lot about Nehemiah before 446 B.C. We don't. Nehemiah 1, 1 starts that date. So we don't know before that. We don't know what God did to get him to this point. What, what God is doing in the, through the book of Nehemiah, here is a mission. Here was the right leader. Did they get, did I choose the right leader to accomplish the mission? Yes, learn from him. How did he do this to my glory? Learn from him. That's why Nehemiah is one of the great books on leadership in the Bible. Because here you see a man with a clear assignment, clear mission. He could articulate the mission right off the top of his head. And everybody who worked for him could. Did they accomplish the mission to the glory of God? Yes, absolutely.
1: God can work through
0: Yeah God also delights in taking rank, ruthless, rebellious pagans who never ever come to know him to accomplish his purpose.
1: yeah yeah he does.
0: All right, let's move on chapter 6 verse one. Now we're back to the second cycle of opposition. The first cycle of opposition is over. And they, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the three main enemies, they have not been successful. They cannot thwart the work. They cannot stop the work. They can hardly even hinder the work. So now what are they going to do? They take a whole different mode of attack. Are you excited about trying to find out what that is? The second the second cycle of opposition. Now, now the first opposition, and it's in your notes too how I've outlined it, but the first one is what they do personally. Now, when Sinbalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time and not yet set up the doors and the gates, so where are we? They're about halfway through the project. They've rebuilt most of the wall, but they don't have the gates done. And that's a big deal. I mean, you can have the wall done, but you have all these big open gates. That doesn't help much. So, you know, it's like halfway done. They're amazed that we're that far along. St. Ballant and Geshem sent to me saying, Come. Let us meet together, Hakopferim, in the plain of Ono. We do not know this town. We really don't know where that is. But we do know where the plain of Ono is. It's northwest of Jerusalem. And if you're really interested, in your map, you can see Jerusalem. Ono is way up here, very close to the coast. It's a flat plain because as you go from the mountains of, of Samaria and Judah down toward the, toward the Mediterranean, it gets flat. It's called, it's called the Shepela. and th- So that's where they are, in this plain right near the coast. So they, they want to, hey, hey, come up. Come up and talk to us. Let's have a meeting. We're going to have some Omaha steak, about this thing, and a special steak sauce you like, Nehemiah. But they intended to do me harm. Why did Nehemiah reach that conclusion? Why would Nehemiah say that? How does he know that? Maybe they want to talk to him. Maybe they want to negotiate a compromise. How did he know that? How did he reject them? Pardon me? It's not the kind of guys
1: that they were.
0: Yeah. I mean, everything he knew about these three men. When they issue an invitation to travel from Jerusalem in the mountains of Judah... 2,900 feet below sea level, and go all the way down to the coast, about 70 miles or so away. That doesn't make sense to me. Why would they want me to do that? Why would they want me to get that far away from Jerusalem to I meet with them?
1: Do you have any previous
0: experience with these three? Well, not in any not in any sitting down and negotiating when he has talked to them, they've done much to try to thwart what he's doing, but he's never had any negotiations with them, that kind of thing. So I don't I'm not sure even God said to him maybe he did, don't do this. I think he just intuitively. Doesn't that make sense? And wisdom dictates they're out to harm me. What do you think he's thinking of? Assassinate me? Kill me? I mean, I can't figure out what possible good there would be for me to go that far from Jerusalem to meet with these three guys.
1: How long would 37 miles be? I mean, how long would it take to get
0: there? Well, it, it'd be more than... Uh, yeah. Well, you're walking down the mountain, I, I don't know. At talking. least, at least a good part of a day, if not more than that. I mean, it's, it's rough territory to go from Jerusalem all the way to the coast without the cars and the lovely things we enjoy... That that would have been an arduous trip for him, and it, I mean it's far enough away that just common sense indicates they they don't have my best interests at heart. So his response was: they sent messages to them saying, "I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop when I leave it and come down to you?" So what's he saying? It's a matter of priorities. And you're not a priority. I have the work God wants me to do. What sense does it make for me to stop what I'm doing and go talk to you? It's not a priority. So no. Sorry I can't come. My schedule's full. And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. So what does that mean? They're very persistent. Four times they say, Hey, come up and meet us. plane of honor. Nope. Matter of priorities. You're not a priority. <clears throat> Second strategy. What is today called fake news. <laughs> in the same manner, Sanballat, for the fifth time, so this is the fifth time he tries to get in contact with Nehemiah sent his servant to me with an open letter. Now, you maybe ought to circle that or just make a note of that. that that's quite important. That, that's a very important way to, to rephrase it or characterize it. This is an open, publicly accessible, Freedom of Information Act kind of document. Everybody can see this. This isn't a private letter. With the seal of the governor, this is an open public means of communication. It was written, and it was written, quote, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That why that is why you are rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king and you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now remember, this is an open public letter. This isn't a private diplomatic correspondence with the governor's seal. This is open. And it's got three parts to it. And each one of these parts is very incendiary, very potentially serious in terms of the Persian Empire. And thirdly, Nehemiah could be charged with sedition. So what are the three charges? We know what you're doing. You're organizing a rebellion against the Persian Empire. And secondly, Nehemiah, you want to proclaim yourself king. And thirdly, you have a bunch of prophets, a bunch of public individuals who are organizing a cheering squad, who are organizing a bunch of people who are going to stand in the square of Jerusalem and say what? There is a king in Judah. It's Nehemiah. And by the way, Nehemiah, because it's an open letter, Artaxerxes is going to hear about this. And what do you think Artaxerxes is going to think? So, I mean, this, you know, what our president calls fake news, this is the epitome of fake news. None of this is true. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're watching Fox News or MSNBC, none of this is true. They made it up. Why make this up?
1: Blackmail.
0: Okay, blackmail. Derail. Yeah, and and, and blackmail, derail. This this will do it. It will create a sense of panic. We don't want Artaxerxes to hear about this. I mean, we know it's not true, but if Artaxerxes hears about this, he could put a stop to it. So this is at a little bit of a different level. This is a little bit more serious. Verse 8, how is Nehemiah going to respond to this? Then I sent to him, saying, No, such things as you say have been done, for you were inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work, and it will not be done. In a very real sense, Nehemiah is saying, I hear what you've written, prove it. There's no proof for what you're saying. But I understand what you're doing. Intimidation. Fear. You know, in a a way, now it isn't exactly parallel, but in a way it's what the Pharisees kept saying in that last year of Jesus' public ministry, A.D. 32 to A.D. 33. If we follow what he's saying, and he is the Messiah, Rome is going to come and crush us again. The Rome is not going to tolerate a king in Judah, in Judea. Rome is not going to tolerate that. I'm in one of my other classes. We're studying the Gospel of Luke, and that is exactly that is exactly what happened. What we just finished studying, the Pharisees are saying, if we follow this guy, Rome is going to come and crush us because they will not tolerate a king of the Jews. They will not tolerate that. And so, in a sense, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create enough fear and intimidation that the people building wall will stop. Nehemiah says, there's no evidence for this. There's absolutely not a shred of evidence for this. You're inventing it. And then what does he do? He prays. But now, O God, the end of verse 9, but now, O God, strengthen my hand. Self-elevating prayer? No. Lord, you know what I'm doing is what you've asked me to do. You know none of this is true. Strengthen us, protect us, guard us, keep us.
1: Doesn't it also speak to, his, to Nehemiah's reputation and integrity that nobody else really listened mm. or responded? Mm. I mean, if this was an open letter and kind of announcing it to the world, but evidently nobody took up arms to yeah. drive him out.
0: Nobody believed nobody it. Right. Yeah. That's really a great comment, Joel. That really is. And that's a very appropriate conclusion to reach. It does say something about his public reputation, his integrity, that it's inconceivable for us to really believe that Nehemiah would declare himself to be king. We know that's he's not that kind of man. Yeah. That's really good. I think that fits here, absolutely. But don't miss that last that last item. He prays. Lord, strengthen my hands. All right. I'm not sure we have time to do the whole thing, but we're gonna get started on it third one. third one. Does
1: he really mean strengthen his hands? Or is he talking about strengthen my spirit or my confidence? Or how would you...
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good comment. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphorical request. It, it's a figure of speech. It's not just... His hands, so that his hands will be strong to lift the bricks and all that. But his hands is a metaphor for his leadership and all that needs to be done. Strengthen what we're doing and strengthen my. And it's like, um, don't don't let me lose focus of what I'm really supposed to do. And my trust and dependence on you, because this, I mean, to me, this is a serious charge. I mean, this this could result in being charged with sedition against the king of Persia. But he says, no, there's no proof for this. And and I think what Joel said is correct. His integrity was such that the people, this is an open public letter, The the people both around and in the province of Yehud, no, he's not doing that. There's no evidence he's doing that. And we believe Nehemiah, not these false purveyors of chicanery. Isn't that a great way to put that? Anyway. All right, any other questions? Let me begin the third one because we'll not get it all done because of time. Now, something else happens. And it's really an interesting twist because Nehemiah goes to visit somebody. His name is Shemiah. It doesn't tell us this, but it it seems as if he's a priest. Now, I went into the house of Shemiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehebael, who was confined to his home. Meaning, he's sick, he's an invalid, he has a bad cold, he stumbled and fell, he broke his ankle. Those last four sentences I made up, but for some reason, Nehemiah has to go see him. Why does he go see him? We don't know. What's his relationship with him? We don't know. But because he's an invalid or he can't get out, he goes to see him. And as he goes to see him, Shemaiah says, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Let's let's conclude that is a priest. He may not be, but there's some reasons why that's perhaps true. So he had some kind of relationship with Nehemiah. To some degree, Nehemiah trusted him. And so Shemaiah says, Nehemiah, you know who they are. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They're out to get you. They're out to kill you. And look, I only, have, I only have one solution for this. Let's you and I take refuge in the temple as an altar of asylum, according to Exodus 21, verses 13 and 14. That's what Shemai is doing. And he uses that phrase, let's close the doors of the temple. Let's take refuge in the temple. Let's treat this as an altar of asylum. David will do that. That makes sense. Shemaiah is saying to Nehemiah something that was in line with the practices of the law, according to Exodus 21, verses 13 and 14. That makes sense. That's reasonable. Presumably, and we're not exactly sure of the uh, the intensity of this, but to some extent Shemaiah was like a friend, a colleague. He knew him. Maybe he trusted him to an extent. And so Shemaiah is saying something that's not the fake news that these guys were propagating in the previous paragraph. This is kind of reasonable. This is in line with the law. And I know these guys are out to get me. In all likelihood, there is a plot to kill me. Does Nehemiah do this? Does he agree to this reasonable request? If you want to find out, come back next week. Boy, I just love to leave you hanging for something. That rarely happens in this class. I was hoping I could get it done, but now I created some interest. I hope you'll come back, even if it's only 8 degrees outside and the north wind's blowing. Lovely weather God's blessed us with. I'm going to pray, because you are no longer believing my fake news about the weather. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of studying the Word of God together. Thank you for this incredible book of Nehemiah, the incredible um, exemplary servant leader that he was. He He led with fortitude, with discipline, with clarity of mission, but he served as he led. He was a model servant leader. We learned so much from him about leadership and about a godly individual in the right position of leadership being used by you to accomplish a seemingly insurmountable task in 52 days. Lord, we thank you for this book. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their interest and their engagement and interaction as we share and talk and apply the Word of God together. May we be men of faith. May we be men of God, men who are serious in, in, our, in our life, in our lives and what you ask us to do, to represent you well. We ask for that enablement to do that. Bless these men, take care of them, use them in their lives and all the various areas of people they touch. May they always be ready for those divine appointments that you send their way to represent you and represent you well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: See
0: you next week.